0: Kiefer ended up tripping her. She fell and broke her arm. And he was like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Don't worry, I'll pay for it. I'll pay for it. She's like, I'm Canadian. I don't have health insurance. And I'm laughing hysterically. And he is like, what is so funny? And I'm like, this is hilarious. The three of us are Canadians and your grandfather gave us free health care. And now we're in America where you're going to have to pay for her health care. You don't think that's hilarious? And he was like, no, I don't think that's funny at all. And I was like, this is the most amazing moment as a Canadian. Like, this is irony, Alanis Morissette. This is irony.
1: Uh Hello and welcome once again to the No Name NYC podcast. My name is Eric Better, the host and producer of No Name and a Bag of Chips, New York's longest running comedy variety show. By the way, for those of you paying attention to what's going on with us, it looks like we're finally going to be making our return to live shows of some sort this fall. We'll keep you posted on that. The voice you heard up front was Jillian Thomas, our first foreign-born guest. She's from all the way over in Canada. Really enjoyed talking with her. You know, I, I know her work here. I really didn't know about her past, and it was fun getting to hear about her. Plus, I mean, she's got great stories. Wherever she goes, she always got stories. And she's a very funny person, and, well, we hope you enjoyed our conversation with her. I enjoyed our conversation with her. We'll get to that in a little bit. In a recent episode, I was talking about having stumbled on a playlist. I was looking for something else. My phone decided to call up a playlist of one-hit wonders of the 70s. It was a combination of me being too lazy to get up and turn it off, and just the kind of fascination you get when you encounter stuff that's a little weird. It really got me thinking a lot. Like, I I had to keep listening because I was fascinated because, you know, this was a different time when entertainment wasn't as fragmented. You know, you had very few places where people could find their entertainment. You had a certain number of radio stations, a certain number of TV stations. And if something was really popular, everybody knew about it. So you get these people who have this hit. And it's like the only thing that years later that they are remembered for And I found it fascinating to listen to the scope of what that meant. What I'm saying is that some of them you could hear, it's a not very good song, recorded by, say, mediocre singers or musicians or whatever, but great production work. So it sounds great. And you can kind of understand why it's catchy and and people pick up on it. There are other things where maybe it's a crappy production. It sounds like they pulled all their money to go into the studio to record one song and they really have talent. You can just hear them pouring their heart out. And then, you know, everything here and there and in between, you know, and it really got me to thinking about the people who had that moment. I'm sure that for a lot of them, if not all of them, they must have thought, like, this is it. We're on easy street from here. Not knowing that this was their moment, their only moment. It was there and it was all gone in a heartbeat. I wonder how did they deal? Some of them it ruined their life. Like, oh, I thought we were onto something and it was, no one gives a crap. For some people, you know, I'm sure they went on to lead a fun and full, rich life. And this was just a quirky little anecdote, something fun that happened to them along their journey. I'm not someone who seeks out where are they now kinds of columns or whatever, but I I do wonder, especially for people in the arts who have that moment, whether it's an actor or a singer-songwriter, and I wonder about that stuff. For example, I take pride in the fact that No Name has continuously done shows for 28 years, but I don't know how many people we reach or what that means Are we a voice crying in the wilderness? Is just an annoying little noise off in the forest? Or will anyone even remember we were here? You know, I think when you come to the end of it, it kind of really doesn't matter so much if you're enjoying what you're doing and if what you're doing has meaning. I guess I just want to say to anyone who's listening out there, especially for those of you who've supported us through the years and who've come through and who actually pay attention to what we're doing, I just want to thank you for being a part of this, man, because it's been a blast. And I hope it'll continue to be a blast for as long as we're able to keep blasting. And as long as we connected with you, then we weren't a one hit. And thank you for giving what we do some meaning. Now, is anyone listening to the podcast? I don't know, but if you are, you've got a great conversation with the wonderful, engaging Jillian Thomas. We'll get to that conversation in just a minute after this word from our sponsor. Escape to Green Bay. That's right, the historic Astor House Bed and Breakfast in beautiful Green Bay, Wisconsin. Now, I don't know if you've ever been to a bed and breakfast before, but the breakfast at a lot of these places tends to be like a mini box of cereal or uh, some questionable fruit, things of that nature, a piece of toast maybe with some butter. But not at the historic Astor House Bed and Breakfast. Your innkeepers, Tom and Linda Stieber, will provide you with a delicious, absolutely world-class breakfast every single morning. They will also make you feel welcome in any one of their five luxury accommodations, all of which have a private bath and some of which have their own jacuzzi. If you want to know what's going on around town, Tom and Linda will let you know about any special events and they'll also make recommendations for you to any of the wonderful restaurants in town. So you can't beat it. Go. Go now. Go. Get away to Green Bay. For more information or for reservations, go to www.asterhouse.com. That's A-S-T-O-R-H-O-U-S-E dot com get away to green bay I'm aware of this and I can't remember where I first became aware of this but I don't believe I've ever asked you about it before you came to our country you were known in Canada in some circles as the queen of pot comedy is that accurate
0: yes <laughs> I—I I mean, it is a name I gave myself, uh, but oh, okay. So you
1: weren't like elected, or there was no, no overthrowing of the old queen. Or oh, anything. there was
0: an old queen, which is why it was such a big deal that I chose that for myself and started calling myself the Queen of Pot Comedy. But I ran the longest-running comedy show in a marijuana cafe.
1: Oh, is that, is that a Canadian thing?
0: Yeah, very much a Canadian thing. At least in Toronto, there's. So you like you don't a- have
1: to go to Amsterdam for <laughs> that. <laughs> no. No. Oh and, man, I, I all the frequent flyer miles. Oh
0: my god, forget about it. Just crap. go north. Just take a greyhound. Does that still work? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> megabus. That's it. Megabus. You gotta take the megabus. Yeah, I, yeah. Just go north. I went to university where my first class we're talking I mean, I'm old, so and I went to university when I was seventeen, so we're talking <laughs> like 1993, my first class was movement. The guy walked us down to the naked beach, which was on campus. He took his clothes off. He rolled a joint, smoked it, passed it around and said, let's get to know each other, kids. And I was like, where the fuck am I? I came from Winnipeg. That's not Winnipeg style. That wasn't my Winnipeg style.
1: It's it's been less than five minutes and I completely see Canada in a different light now. (laughs) How long you been here?
0: Do you work for the government? Uh, No, 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 no. I've been here since... um, this is terrible. This is where I screw up all the time. My husband is the only one who remembers anniversaries. I never remember anything. <laughs> he, there was a box from Tiffany's once on the bed and a bag of bombus, those like Israeli peanut flavored snacks. And he was like, if you know what day it is, you can choose one of these treats. And I was like, I don't know why there's Tiffany's on the bed. It was our anniversary. Um, so I've been here 10 years, I guess. I feel like I'm I'm in the decade. I'm in the last year making up my decade. I still don't feel like a New Yorker. I feel like that's at two decades.
1: What do you think it would take to make you feel like you're a New Yorker?
0: Two decades of living here. I haven't Not- been mugged yet. Knock on some wood.
1: <laughs> I'm always fascinated by what, you know, it, as a native New Yorker, I love hearing stories about people who came here. A lot of people have this defining moment they like, okay, now I'm officially in New Yorker.
0: Yeah, I would say uh, being on the 4-5 train rush hour and using my elbows to move the Wall Street boys out of the way. That's, All those finance bros. That's where I say I'm still Canadian, but my elbows are American. I saw one of them hip check an old lady out of the way so he could get the seat. So, 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 and ironically, the only guy masturbating in front of me in front on a train was in Toronto. It wasn't even in New York. I haven't even had a masturbator yet. You got
1: to get out more. Seriously. So you were born in Canada? Where were you born?
0: Canada. Winnipeg. Manitoba. Did Winnipeg think- is the city. Manitoba is the province. Canada oh, is the country. And to make it easy for the Americans, my weekend trips to America would include Fargo. That's how I explain it. It's near Fargo. So when that movie came out, I was one of only three people who knew where Fargo was.
1: When I was a kid, I watched The Electric Company, and they had a character, oh. Fargo North, decoder. <laughs> and... uh
0: is that the show that had the like a person in a Spider-Man costume at some points? Uh, yes,
1: yes. And, they added Spider-Man along the way. It was also the the program that the original cast had, like Morgan Rita Moreno, Rita Moreno, Morgan yes. Freeman, Bill Cosby. Ooh, yeah, uh, yeah. So it's, it's, did he it's,
0: draw with a big marker? And that is not a euphemism. I mean, on the show, that's what I remember. Did he have a? <laughs> that sounds terrible. Did he have a very thick marker that he drew with during that show?
1: I I don't recall that. It's possible, but I, I your don't sound
0: engineer me. is chiming in with a head nod. I just want to say,
1: uh, oh, okay. Well, you know, I, because as
0: a Canadian, that show was was not something I saw a lot. And then as right, my as right. my age, I don't remember. If there were Muppets
1: on it, you would have seen
0: it. Oh yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Muppets. Hello. <laughs> everything everything revolved around the Muppets uh, and Snoopy, but. Um, Definitely, but yeah, oh my god, Snoopy was the best. <laughs> and Garfield, Garfield crept in there for a while. Um, uh, yeah, and and
1: then he crept back out.
0: I know. And then there was a re- speaking of crepes, uh, no, I don't think it was a crepe <laughs> restaurant, but it was, uh, there was a Garfield themed pizza restaurant in Toronto. It just folded, but it only opened in the last five years. And I was like,
1: who the- they missed who the- their window.
0: Exactly. Although, although, in all
1: fairness, Popeye's fried chicken came long after the peak of the this strip and the cartoons. So. Wait, is
0: that actually named after Popeye? Oh yeah, yeah, it, it, it actually. What?
1: I mean, I, I as far as I know, I put it this way: I know that for for many years they had like the Popeye cartoon. You know, his face was, was on like their stuff.
0: Oh my god! I know. had no idea. I've never eaten at a Popeyes. I had no idea. We didn't have a Popeyes. <laughs> no, but you had
1: Garfield Pizza, so. But that was yeah, in who's Toronto. To who?
0: Yeah, seriously. Winnipeg we had Hunky Bill's pierogies. He had his own like infomercial locally and he had <laughs> commercials locally uh, in Winnipeg. So we were known for our pierogies and we're also the Slurpee capital of the world. <laughs> yeah, Americans got so upset with Winnipeg winning 10 years in a row that you guys fought 7-Eleven to have the competition canceled. And then oh, really? Yes, it had to be canceled because Americans were so upset that this town, Winnipeg in Canada, kept winning Slurpee Capital of the World. First of all, it's not something to brag about. That's a lot of sugar. Also, what? it's just the weirdest, weirdest thing ever because i will go home it will be minus 39 degrees celsius and there will still be a line for the 7-eleven slurpee machine in february so it is a sickness uh i do believe sugar is like cocaine and hello slurpees (laughs) pure sugar um so explains a lot about winnipeg right there but also americans doesn't that just tell you everything you need to know
1: (laughs) well i'm thinking this you got the brain freeze before you even get out the line (laughs) so wait a minute I, I, i think we got lost somewhere along the way um, That's how uh, I roll. You,
0: you, 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 <laughs> I will take you. Ask me a question, I'll give you 17 different threads of answers.
1: We're in trouble because I think we're, we're both kicking it out like that. But did we get to the bottom of the queen of pot comedy thing, though? So I, you said it's you just, had to it replace was just, the old queen.
0: Yeah. Well, there was this other woman. I don't know if she was the queen, but she called herself something pot comedy. And I think I stole the name after she fucked my boyfriend. I think. <laughs> I think that's where I sort of stole it and was like, "No, there's a new queen." <laughs> I don't think it was queen. It was but it was something very much where I was like, "Oh, really? Okay, lady." Um she was from Vancouver, which admittedly is the bigger pot capital of Canada. It was Amsterdam before Amsterdam when my partner was one of the judges at the Amsterdam's their weed cup that they do. The oh my god, it's got a name that of course you can tell him a pothead because I forgot the name of the weed cup. But there <laughs> but were at
1: some point, I'm sure.
0: I knew lots of things at some point. The Canadian weed was actually smuggled into Amsterdam for the competition. That's how good it is.
1: Wow. wow. Yeah, and they you were the queen of all of that.
0: Yeah. But uh, that's Vancouver. And sadly, when I lived in Vancouver and went to university there, I was sober in all ways and very righteous about being sober in all ways. So I kind of missed out on the fun of being in the Amsterdam of Canada. And I made up for it once I got to Toronto.
1: So which came first the part of the comedy for you?
0: I smoked weed for the first time, September of or August of two thousand and I started comedy in November of
1: two thousand. Pretty big year. And when did you become the (laughs) I moved across the country too? Until the ascent.
0: Well, I had to take someone out who was running the show badly. So once he quit, then I moved in and took over the show and made it what it was and grew it into a show that still runs today. Uh, (laughs) Even after the queen had abdicated? Oh, no, they slaughtered me and dethroned me. Yeah, it was a pretty brutal. You're lucky you got out. There's a very famous comic Canadian who moved to England. He's very, very famous. He's been in a few TV shows this year. And uh, yeah, he tried to. And you're
1: not going to name him.
0: Bobby Mayer he was the one who tried to call immigration to get me kicked out of the United States there was death threats there was like all this weirdness around my show everyone's like potheads are so sweet potheads are are so harmless yeah well I tried to leave the show to a person she accepted then she reneged on letting me have a good this went down a dark road that I did not want to talk about (laughs) well
1: you know Canadian
0: comedy is bullshit never believe that Canadians are polite or nice (laughs) and never believe that potheads are that's the lesson I left Canada with several knives in my back Although maybe the front As uh, Oscar Wilde used to say A true friend stabs you in the front
1: Let's go back a little bit When you were a younger human mm-hmm. You were, I think your words were Completely sober in all ways
0: Oh, righteously sober
1: is that how you were wired Or that how you were programmed Or um, a combination
0: I had a grandfather who would not enter a building If it had alcohol in it He was from the Plymouth Brethren religion, a very, very strict Christian-British craziness. And that's how he raised my dad and my uncles, and my dad sort of passed that on into our world. My dad would have a glass of sherry at the end of the night, and my mom would make this dessert with creme de menthe in it, grasshopper slice, that had real alcohol in it. So it was a weird house because it was very religious— So you're not supposed to touch booze. That's really for communion. That's the way my parents looked at it. Mm -hmm. But this weird religion, my grandfather, nobody in his family was religious. He was in the army. He was stationed in India. He was a lightweight boxing champion. And he was in a match and he hit the man. The man went down and suffered such a severe brain injury. They rushed him to the hospital and they said he wouldn't survive the night. My grandfather stayed up preaching all night to a god he had never thought about, never met, never went to church, and said if this man lives, I will devote the rest of my life to you. Wow. <laughs> my grandfather was a man of his word, but also Did your grandfather have any convictions prior to then? No, nothing. Nothing. His whole family n- no religion whatsoever. His Did sisters Did they believe
1: there was a higher being?
0: I that I don't know. All I know is Uh, that it was not a religious household, that he Uh was mocked. But the weirdest thing is, who is in India and has a spiritual awakening, but it's from one of the most restrictive Christian religions? That's the one person you found in India that's religious? Are you kidding me? So the one person he knew in India was a British man who was Plymouth Brethren, and so he became Plymouth Brethren and never drank alcohol, was not allowed in the house, Like I said, my parents drank. And then by the time my brother and I came around, my parents didn't really care. So like by the time I was seven and my brother was nine, they were still religious. They just weren't watching their children. My brother and I were making booze milkshakes when we were that age. We would make creme de menthe milkshakes and like just get hammered. When we flew to England to move home, I was 10. My brother was 12. We asked for brown cows from the flight attendant, and we were served brown cows. We were all separated on that flight. My brother and I were together. My sister was upstairs. It was a two-story flight, and my parents were somewhere at the front. That lady, I don't know if she thought, like, oh, my God, kids, maybe this will put them to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> or if there just was no policy, because, like, there's no way we looked 18.
1: <laughs> and, and how old were you at this point?
0: 10 and 12. And we'd been drinking for three years. My mom always says, that's terrible that you say that. And I'm like, no, we started drinking at seven and nine. We were making booze milkshakes all the time. And then when I was 16, my boyfriend, my first love, was killed by a drunk driver. And I became the most holier-than-thou lady on the planet about drinking. And I never drank from that moment until I was 21 when I lived in New York City for, for a brief time, if the government is listening, I was just hanging out with some friends for a few months, Like <laughs> two years. I never worked illegally and oh, you can't prove anything. I was righteously sober and I would go to parties and I wasn't like, oh, how dare you drink? I was just like, can I have your car keys, please? Can I have your car keys, please? And I would uh, drive everybody home. I just made sure everyone got home safe. And I got really crazy about that for several years. Mm-hmm. And then I was sitting in a bar in New York City. I just turned 21. My friends were taking me, trying to get me to get have a drink. And I was like, I don't drink. I don't drink. And the bartender asked me why. And I told him. And then he said, when I was a kid, my mother, my brother, and my father were all killed by a drunk driver. I was the only survivor in the car. You can't mm. blame alcohol for that. That's the person's choice. And you don't need to limit alcohol in your life because of that. I think you're being stupid. And I think we should cheers those who we love are gone now with a shot. <laughs> That was my first drink from 16 but wait, to but that, 21. But
1: that was the sales pitch that did it to you? You you followed oh, in your you, in your grandfather's footsteps <laughs> in a sense of, of, of like, you know, living oh, yeah. a sober life uh, when you had your traumatic experience. And then a bartender says, well, you know, we should do shots for your birthday. And, and that's it? You're sold?
0: No, it's because my best friend had died, also killed by a drunk driver oh, yeah. <laughs> a few months earlier. And I was like, fuck it. Life is too short. It swung me both ways. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, my boyfriend crazy. died when I was 16 and my best friend died when I was 21. Both killed by drunk drivers. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I don't mean to seem <laughs> insensitive here, which would sound more convincing <laughs> if I didn't laugh while I said that. So where did the weed come in?
0: Weed. Weed, I didn't start till I was 25 years old. I was 25 when I first smoked weed. It was just because I moved to Toronto and I was going back to school and everyone I knew smoked weed. But well, you haven't even got to the best part. 2006, I permanently quit drinking. Weed I've quit on and off for years. It's like a bad relationship. <laughs> it's like Brokeback Mountain. I just can't quit you.
1: <laughs> oh, man. And, I'm just and,
0: kidding. But yeah.
1: And, and and did you look at each other with the same sort of loving eyes? Man. You know that
0: scene? In, it's in one of the Harold and Kumars. It might be the first one. He does make love to a bag of weed. So where does comedy come in? In well, terms I of druggies?
1: See, I first met you as a storyteller, and I knew you did some shows with my friend, our no-name friend, Michelle Carlo. And I think when I first met you, she had booked you for a show that we were producing. I don't do this an awful lot, but I think I had Googled you, and that's where I saw the Queen of Pop comedy thing at that time or whatever. And <laughs> like, To be clear, comedy came before storytelling for you, right? Oh, yeah. The storytelling
0: okay. was a bet. I went to a show with our friend Maggie,
1: Maggie Nuttall, for those listening, if you if you know her, definitely a familiar face in the New York City storytelling yeah, scene. Yeah,
0: absolutely. What was that cafe in the, I think it was the West Village, you went downstairs and they had a storytelling show. This oh, Cornelia Street Cafe. That one. So she was on the show and it was the one that is run by two women.
2: Um, Barbara Alaprantis. Yes, one of
0: them. yes. And the other one was, I don't think that person was there. And I feel like, yes, because it should have been Nicole. And I feel like Michelle was filling in for Nicole that night. Maggie was booked on the show. How long
1: were we talking? Because I I don't know the whole history, but I know at one point, Tommy Pryor, who's been a previous guest on the podcast, was running a show for a few years. And then his show was replaced by a four-headed storytelling thing. It was uh, Nicole Ferraro. Barbara yeah. Alaprantis, Michelle Carlo, and Jeff Rose. Yes. Was that the show you're talking about? I
0: did do that show, but this one was another one. I only remember two women being in charge, and I just remember okay. Barbara that being be there. Okay, it a different
1: show. I'm, I'm not fully immersed in that. It story. just had
0: that, like, it was booked performers, and then there were spots for four storytellers. And so show. Maggie was like, I put your name in so you can <laughs> do your story. And I'm like, I'm not a storyteller. And she goes, yeah, you are. You're going to do that story. You're going to tell them about Christmas. And I was like okay, I'll tell them about the pot brownie at Christmas. And she's like, great. And I did the story and I don't know if it's just the adrenaline of not not knowing what I'm doing because storytelling is still new to me, but it went far better than I expected. And that's how I met Michelle. And she was like, you're going to do my show. <laughs> so, and then I got booked on another show because of it. And it was like my second storytelling show ever. And it was the woman who comes in from California occasionally and does her show. And it used to be at Sidewalk. She booked me, and I tried to cancel. And she's like, no, you can't cancel. I've had other people cancel. I need you tonight. And then she told me, I need you to do this story. But it was a different story than what I had told her I was doing. <laughs> and I had come from sinus surgery. And I was high on oxycone. And, and I was in so much pain because of my insurance. They had done the surgery in the guy's office. <laughs> I had taken two <laughs> Valiums. That's it. Did he use the plastic utensils? It was like that. It was real close Man. to that. And I would just remember um, I've seen two ENTs since we've had better insurance. And both of them were like, oh my God, he did what? And I was like, wow. in his office. And they're like, oh my God, you must have a very high pain threshold. And I'm we're, like, oh, yeah. We're not in Canada anymore. Oh, no, no. I mean, hey, I might have had to wait eight weeks for that surgery in Canada, but holy but fuck, it would have been in us. Plastic utensils. <laughs> in fairness though my mother was a nurse while i was growing up and so there was one time my brother cracked my head open and my mom came home and she's like we're not wasting doctor's time and i'm not wasting my day going back to the emergency room where i just came from so she just sat me on the bathroom counter and sewed my head up
1: wow yeah
0: just sewed it right up. So I'm ready for American health care. Well, <laughs>
1: yeah, I, I could understand that.
0: Anyone who's a child of a of a nurse or a doctor, I feel for them because. Uh,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. I leave work at work. <laughs> All right, so so that's how you got into the storytelling thing. But when did you first get the yearning to do comedy?
0: Oh, um, I think I, I knew I wanted to be a stand-up because uh, for Christmas one year, My brother got Kermit, my sister got Miss Piggy, and I got Fozzie. And I still have my stuff, Fozzie Bear. And yes, I know he's a terrible comic. I don't care. That There was just something about what he did um, that made me go like, this is what I want to do. And also just sort of the Muppets in general. They had a show. It was a variety show. I mean, right now I produce a cabaret show that's exactly like often like the Muppet <laughs> show. Often <laughs> there are crazy things that you, happen. You were preaching
1: to the choir, my friend. Oh,
0: you know it. You know it. <laughs> that's why, I mean, I met Frank Oz. And people don't really – I try to explain, like, I lost my mind. And and Frank Oz had to – and, I mean, he grabbed me and held me outside in Central Park because I was freaking out meeting him. But I said to him, like, my whole life is because of your art, like – everything you've done. When I was a kid and got picked on, I looked to Super Grover for strength. I loved Super Grover. When I knew what I wanted to be for a living, it was Fozzie Bear. I wanted to be a stand-up just like Fozzie Bear. And that's, he's Fozzie Bear. Um, My brother had the Ernie doll. I had Bert because I loved Bert because he was weird and liked birds. That's Frank Oz. And I said to him, and then on top of all that, you're my first feminist hero. You're Miss Piggy. And he said to me, I never understood that. I never understood the power of Miss Piggy until Gilda Radner. And then in my head, I'm like, "Oh my God, Frank Oz is talking to me, and he's telling me a story about Gilda Radner." Oh my God, this is the most amazing day of my life. And I started to like, "Oh my God, oh my God," I'm like shaking. And it's also like the middle of summer, and I'm sweating profusely because it's just so fucking hot in Central Park. <laughs> and he's introduced uh, the Muppets Take Manhattan because they're doing a, the week of movies is all New York themed. Right, right. And I he know, told some funny stories and like so. So when i was talking to him and and he's like so i had no clue until gilda radner sat me down she was doing the show and she says to me you have no clue how important miss piggy is going to be for little girls she's so powerful And he said, I still don't really understand why. And I said, Frank, because you wrote her as a man. No female character had been unapologetically driven, unapologetically self-confident. Miss Piggy was insanely self-confident. She knew what she wanted. She knew how she looked. She knew she looked amazing. Nobody Exactly. And if if you got in her way, she karate chopped you.
1: Regardless of gender identification or creature.
0: Yes. And she was unapologetic in who she loved, like I just everything. And I said, that's why she's so powerful. As a little girl, I had never seen a female character written like that, performed like that. That's why you're so powerful. And that's when I kind of was like, I'm gonna start crying. And, then, and that's when he just, he just held me. And he just, he literally grabbed me and held me. And now we call him Frank Oz, my fake best friend. He did tweet at me twice. Together. After that, oh, he tw- nice. he liked to tweet of mine and then he tweeted at me once and I was like, oh my God, we're totally best friends.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I I will not, I will not discredit your story at all. You know Rhonda Hanson, right? Yes. You know, she was trained by him and, and oh, Hanson. Yes.
0: Oh, yes. Yeah. You,
1: you, she talked a little bit. Uh, she was another of our guests. I'm, I'm keeping this all uh, in the family here. Um, but you know, she was a previous guest on the podcast and she talked about that a bit. And it's just like,
0: it's I insane... can't wrap my brain around yes. that. That that's her reality, that that was her, like just when she was sitting in the same room as me, I was like, oh my God, I want to ask her so many questions. <laughs> like, just tell me about your life. I just want to know everything. Because yeah. what a life. Oh my God, that woman has had like 80 lives.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, there are a number of
0: people who- She's on the original of- SNL. Because uh, of yeah, the Muppets. Yeah, yeah. Because she, remember yeah, when in, Jim Henson yeah, wanted to do adult Muppets on episode. SNL? Yes. And then Lauren Michaels was like, no, this does not work.
1: <laughs> he, as much as I love the Muppets, it didn't work, but it was kind of fascinating yeah. to make
0: them try and make oh it work. Oh my gosh, you yes. Know? I appreciate what he was trying to do, as you said. Yes. But oh my God, like when you went to a Muppet movie, you knew <laughs> the adults were laughing at different things than the children. Like I already thought he accomplished that goal.
1: We haven't talked a lot about this, but I did hear you once say that Fozzie was who inspired you to be a comic, and I just love that, and I'm so glad you said that, because I, I was like, I made a promise to myself, I wasn't going to trigger you to say it,
2: <laughs> but I was
1: hoping it would come up. <laughs> you know, usually you ask people, say, well, you know, uh, Richard Pryor inspired me, <laughs> and the moment I saw George Carlin, I knew, you know, Robin Williams changed my world. Fozzie Bear made me want to be yeah. a comic. That is the most, most awesome origin story ever.
0: I mean, in fairness, we were raised by British people in Canada, so our comedy was constantly Monty Python and Faulty Towers. I also love just the Muppet sketches. The, my favorite was the dance ballroom sketch because it was just a series of one-liner jokes. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They were old school, like, vaudeville. Laughing. Oh, God, it was like, so that was also what I wanted to do. I was like, what they do, it's just so funny It's so ridiculous. But so then what... I, I just became more like Waldorf and Statler <laughs> as the years went on. <laughs> She calls that art. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> what a tough break for art. Whoa, 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 whoa,
1: whoa, whoa. So, they did so, have some good lines, though. No, I, I love Statler and oh, Wardle. Are you kidding me? So um, good. I identify a little too much after all these years. But, <laughs> yeah. uh, but so, when did you first seriously think about doing it? And when did you actually first get on stage to do something?
0: I had a show in university. I went to university for theater. And one of the shows was uh, a Canadian play. And it was written about a female stand-up comic and her life. And I performed that. It was written by a woman who happens to be a female stand-up comic, but she wrote it as a fictional character. It was probably several comics that she knew put into one. I did that, and the, the professor's notes were, while I love your acting, I think you have a real gift here that you need to explore. Were you thinking of acting at
1: the time, or was it just something to do while at university?
0: No, I wanted to be an actor as well as a comic.
1: With, with the acting impulse first?
0: Uh, again, it's The Muppet Show. I, I just wanted to do sense. what everything they did. And theater school was... Um, sort of a natural thing. And also it took me four provinces away from my family. So that was the additional bonus. Get mm-hmm. me the hell out of that house. So theater school yeah, so and she gave play, me notes and, you and then told,
1: she, you were given the note.
0: Yeah. And then she made me host the theater students association. We had like a fundraiser pub night or whatever it was. And there was performances. Everyone could do what they wanted. And she made me host that and that sort of got it going. And then honestly, my parents were going through a really, (laughs) right after I graduated from university from theater school, my parents were going through a pretty horrible divorce. And unbeknownst to either one of them, they had each offered to pay me to go back to school because there was this comedy program um, at this college. It was a brand new program. So I was the second year of this program that they ever had it, where Joe Flaherty's brother is one of the professors, where our musical director is the guy who ran the program itself. The head of the program was the second musical director at Second City. He was thanked by Mike Myers in almost all of his speeches. Mm -hmm. Um, So this guy knew everybody. It was this woman taught sketch she was very very well known from the groundlings she had moved back to canada her mother was maureen forrester one of the greatest opera singers in the world her father was a violin virtuoso and here she was she was my sketch teacher but she was famous for being the philadelphia cream cheese angel in all those commercials wow just to to be in her presence she was a phenomenal teacher linda cash so like that's where it started we were taught sketch stand up (laughs) Stand up sketch writing. We had to write. We had to write a script for a TV show. We were taught by Lauren Froman. He wrote for Richard Pryor's kids' show. He would always tell us, like, I wrote for Richard Pryor's show. And then we were like, he wrote for his children's cartoon, or Judith Light's ex-boyfriend. It was a weird group. It was really expensive, and I had no money to go and do it. I was trying to be an actor in Vancouver and in England. And, yeah, my parents were divorcing, so they each gave me money. (laughs) And I took it from both of them and went and moved to Toronto. Oh, man. It was a one-year program, and uh, then I just started well, I
1: doing... They crammed a lot into that one year. Oh, yeah.
0: Our stand-up teacher <laughs> taught us how to save money on the road. Did you know you can cook a chicken breast in a coffee pot? <laughs> some of it was just the most insane bullshit on the planet, and some of it was hilarious. And then it ended, the year always ends with the Phil Hartman Award, mm-hmm. and it's done in his hometown in Canada. And the year that I was there, I went to the awards show because our, our year was on it. And Joe Flaherty was there. Colin Mockery, Canadian legend and so much fun. Oh my God. And then he's married to a Canadian legend. His wife is a very famous Canadian actress and just the two of them, just to be in there in the presence with them was pretty awesome. And then we did those shows for a few years, the Phil Hartman shows. I don't know if they're still going actually. Oh, Phil Hartman.
1: So you you get through the program and then you just start hitting the mic?
0: Oh, we started hitting the mics during the program because everyone wanted to be a stand-up. And I think out of my class, I think there's only like probably six of us who still do it, but like... A lot of them from my class, except for me, are doing it at a, like a very famous level. And they're all still working. And one was a writer Any for- names
1: we might know here?
0: Oh, just like my old roommate and uh, classmates is, uh, was a writer for Conan for years. Mm-hmm. Another one wrote for The Office and now writes his own television show in Canada. And he was also in England for a while, but he wrote The American Office Another guy we know, he was the original producer for Cobra Kai, which made me kind of angry because I liked Cobra Kai so much and I don't like that person so (laughs) (laughs) much. And uh, and then uh, another guy from my class, he's in a TV show. Ivan Reitman's daughter writes and produces it called Working Moms. He has a recurring role on that. And he's had tons of success since since the program. He was actually the kid that walked in. And I say kid because I was, you know, all of 24 when I started that program. And he was, I think, 20. He walked in and our first sketch class he, or improv class, he did something. And I was like, oh, my God, that guy's going to be a huge star. <laughs> and he is. I should have so, been a casting agent is what I'm saying.
1: So you, you're, you're hitting the mics and stuff uh, while you're going through the program. And do, do you have a... Particular trajectory in mind as a goal, or are you just like just I'm just gonna do this everywhere I can.
0: Or oh, what, I'm not I'm not goal oriented. <laughs> I've been doing stand-up with little to no success rate for 22 years. I'm not a goal-oriented person. (laughs) This is not someone who sits down and goes, how should I make this work? I had no plans, and it shows. Kids Mm. out there, if you're listening, you should make a plan. A plan is a good thing. (laughs) Plans are amazing. Uh, (laughs) I had no structure as a child. I blame that. No plans, no structure, no rules. So Mm. I I don't really understand how I made it this far. (laughs) It's a miracle. you do great work. Yeah, Sometimes. (laughs) <laughs> i've done great work when it really counts like when uh, robin williams shows up at the same show you're doing and uh, you have to open for him that's oh, fun
1: that sounds like a story what happened
0: that was amazing i had one of the best sets of my of my life but it was also kind of like the energy shifted in that room the minute he walked in it was a tiny bar show mm. how, how, he's, how he's far a,
1: you when, when this happened
0: he was in town it was i believe I I could look it up through IMDB because he was filming a movie with Louis Black and it was right when he went, he fell off the wagon in Toronto during this filming and it's later career. And he was getting separated from his second wife. Yeah. Okay. So he fell off the wagon in Toronto and lots of people like, A lot of the comics in Toronto I had a real issue with because they were doing shots with him or they Uh, were encouraging him to do lines of cocaine with them and they thought it was awesome. And I was like, I'd rather share a stage with a live legend than uh, bring him down. So I had a a lot of anger towards a lot of comics during that time. I want to say around 2006. So I was about six, five or six years into stand up. I did the show. And I did well, and I got off stage. He had been standing next to me the whole time before I went up. At the end of the pool table, Mm. we stood next to each other. Somebody gave him a shot of whiskey, and he was doing the whiskey shot, and I was still a little like, should I say Uh. something? (laughs) I had been probably sober. If it was 2006, I might have been sober a few months, so I might have been really like, but I didn't say anything to him. I got off stage, and I walked by him, and he said, nice set. And I said, ah! (laughs) And that's... All that came out of my mouth. So is he
1: your other best friend now? Yeah. well, I'm sorry.
0: Sorry. (laughs) Too soon. Too soon, Eric. (laughs) I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Zombie Robin Williams is my best friend. Yeah, he was lovely. He was really, really kind. He was so nice to everybody. He hit a show every night that he had off when he was Mm -hmm. filming that movie in Toronto. He hit every small club. He hit the big clubs. He did Second City. He did Yuck Yucks, but he also did every small bar show. He was incredibly kind, incredibly lovely man, and insanely funny. Like, to watch this master at his craft in the smallest room, he brought the house down, and it wasn't... Okay, we all know and love him. kind of applause and laughter. It was he was off the cuff. And he was doing what he does best. and it I still have goosebumps. he It was insane. And the worst part is I went home. I was in Toronto in January. And I walked past, the bar used to be called Spirits Bar and Grill, had a mm. great Wednesday night with a phenomenal comic who has since passed away from ALS. She ran that show for years, and because of her and, and, and her nature and who she was, Joanna Downey, she had every celebrity. It wasn't just Robin. Every celebrity who came through Toronto and was a stand-up came to that room and did stand-up. Mm. And it is now an A&W And I walked in and there is a sticker on the floor that says like something about being six feet apart. And the sticker is where the stage used to be. (laughs) And I stood in this A&W and cried. Yeah. (laughs) And the lady was like, are you okay?" And I was like, this used to be like so many of my moments in Toronto started at this little bar, this man that I ended up dating on and off for 10 years. I met him in that bar. I opened for Robin Williams in that bar. Oh, do you remember the guy that was from Law and & Order and he was a, played a lawyer and he was eventually kicked off the show because he was an alcoholic? He was an insane oh, oh, alcoholic. I, I, know who
1: you're talking about.
0: I was there the night that he showed up in Toronto and was at that show and begged for a spot and hammered. He did a show where he ripped apart everybody from that TV show. Everybody who worked on that production. I think she had to drag him off the stage, if I recall mm. correctly. It was a phenomenal place. And so now you can get a mama burger. <laughs>
1: Um it's so you a lines to settle oh, on one, I know, and it's all sad. so horrifying. Uh, two questions they may be intertwined. How far did you get with stand up and performing in Canada, and what led you to New York?
0: Oh, my God. okay. So Canada, it, a few things are weird. I did several television shows. and when I got to New York, they were like, those are called ghost credits. We don't count anything from Canada oh, yeah. uh, which I was like, Wow, that's awesome. I, very early on in my career, probably too early, I was asked to do the show called The Toronto Show, and I had to do stand-up on it, and the musical guest was Ron Sexsmith, who's a huge Canadian musician. It was a really, really big deal, and I remember my best friend had bought me tickets to George Carlin that night, and it was going to work out perfectly. I was going to tape my first TV show doing stand-up, and then I would have enough time to go to the theater to see George Carlin. I'm so nervous on this show. I must have been two years into stand-up, and... (laughs) Russell Peters was supposed to be the host of this show. Russell Peters is a huge comic yeah, now. Yeah, yeah, I know. Uh, but he fucked his audition over. <laughs> he was supposed to do 20 minutes and he did two hours. I also opened for Russell several times. I opened for him at a show at the Hard Rock Cafe when we couldn't even sell it out. and so now he sells out, you know, the O2 Arena in London in like an hour. Russell would would uh, drive by me several times And in in fairness, no matter how big he got, and he kept getting bigger every year that I knew him. Mm -hmm. um, One thing is one of his oldest friends from Toronto, he's had her open for him several times. He DJed her wedding. Like They're still really close. He's still close to his Canadian friends. I know Mm -hmm. he's helped a lot of Canadians out in LA. Uh, But my favorite is just... He was all about the money. He said it then. He sat us down once and was like, this is how you make money at stand-up. I mm-hmm. need to make this much money. He drove fancy cars. This very expensive car pulls up next to me. It's pouring rain. I'm at the bus stop. And I just remember Russell was like, hey, you want a ride? Uh, <laughs> he was that kind of person. He was very nice. kind. Uh, I haven't seen him in years. It'd be fun to see him. Um, where were we on the talking, though? <laughs> so
1: the night of the audition in George Hall and all that?
0: Oh, yeah. So I did that TV show. And when I say I was too soon... It, They had warned me. They had said, listen, the audience is, um, they're standing up and they move around. And we don't mic them. So we will be putting a laugh track in. So Mm -hmm. don't worry. Also, this audience, because we're moving them around, they're, they're not really into comedy all the time. Don't worry if you don't get laughs. Just don't worry. They just kept saying, don't worry if you don't get laughs. Over and over and over again, I was told by the producers. So I get out there and my first joke killed And I got such laughter that it threw me off and I couldn't remember my second joke. And you see this moment where I take a breath and then I look at my hand because I had written my entire set on my hand and you can see it on television. And it aired Christmas Eve. So thank God a lot of people didn't watch it, but a lot of people did. So, yeah, I had a few TV times where I did stand up um, and I did some sketch shows where I was in sketches just like silent on camera I had two very successful shows I had a monthly show called the Mary Jane's a comedy it's still running so it's now in its 22nd year I had the show in a marijuana cafe uh, called the hot box and that show ran for 10 years and then the person I gave it to has started her own show there and has been running it for 10 years
1: pretty nice legacy
0: well (laughs) nobody nobody knows But I had fun. It was such a rough exit from Canada that I I don't really think about anything legacy-wise. But I will tell you that when I came to New York, and uh, I think sometimes people think like, Oh, you've been doing this for a long time. And you're not that successful. Oh, you smoke a lot of weed. I've had twice where people have done my material on stage in New York, and I've had to confront them. And one of them, she did my material in her one-woman show at a festival. And I confronted her not on opening night, and I was sitting next to the artistic director, and he looked at me and said, is she doing your material? Did you help write this, or is she just doing your material. And I said, oh, she's just doing my material. And I had to confront her and talk to her. And she didn't think that they were my jokes. And that was really a beautiful moment because I was able to pull up a TV special I had done for Out TV in Canada where I opened for Bruce Valanche where almost the entire material the entire set she had stolen was solidified right there on television and over 10 years old so don't tell me I don't know my own material so then I said no I I knew right away it was my material and then she shifted gears and said oh I thought it was a tribute I thought like I was allowed to do your material if it's in tribute and I go well then in tribute would mean I get part of your profits and it should say co-writer on your Mm. flyer so we went back and forth and we agreed to a price I talked to my friend who wrote for Conan I talked to my friend who's one of the most famous comics working in Canada talked to my friend who's a playwright and I came up with a number I talked to a producer my friend's cousin is the producer at Colbert and with those four people I came up with a number and asked her to pay me which she did it was one of those moments where it's like you might think I'm new to this country and that I'm new to this comedy, but no, I've been doing this a while and I've got proofs. So that was brutal.
1: Wow. Wow, Mm -hmm. that's insane.
0: Worst part is the festival let her come back the next year. And I'm like, when you're a festival based on artists and artists bringing their own personal work to a festival, what kind of message are you sending to the artists? Yeah. Is that a
1: festival you ever participated in?
0: Oh, yes. Yeah, I did a show there for five years in a row. Leads us to why I live in New York. I was doing this festival. Uh, I came down with a friend. He was producing Canuck Cabaret. It was a midnight Canadian-themed cabaret (laughs) at this festival. We decided to do it every freaking night of the festival. We were talking Mm -hmm. Wednesday through Sunday Mm -hmm. for two weeks. And those first few shows, I think it was just the staff. (laughs) and Not a lot of people came. (laughs) And we did it for five years, and, and it was a lot of fun. The first year we met a woman, and all the Canadians who had come down, she's like, next time you come... For the festival, I'm going to do a Canadian show. My show's at 8, your is at midnight. It's in the same neighborhood. It's going to be great. So we all show up and we do this 8 o'clock show. And there's hardly anybody there, but there is a, a guy filming and then about five audience members. And then the rest are comics that I've known or are from Canada. Right. Jen Purney is the comic and we do her show and it's a lot of fun. And it's my turn. And this guy heckled me. And that's one of my specialties. You want to see what I do best? Bring on the heckles because I will take you down. (laughs) I took this man out. I obliterated him. But because of the lights, I had no clue who it was. Not a clue. After the show, everybody was on the midnight show. So this guy who was filming and his friend of Jen's, his name's Rob. And he's like, well, guys, I I live right across the street from the theater. So why don't you all come over and just hang out? We've got about an hour. We can order food. And then your show's at midnight. And we were like, oh, that's so wonderful. And I sat next to this man, and within half an hour, we were nerding out about Star Wars and holding hands. Mm-hmm. And then I spent two weeks with him in New York, and then I flew home to Canada, and he f- flew to Toronto and took me on a date. Oh, wow. And the thing is, a year to the day that we met at Jen's show, um, I was in New York. He'd flown me here to celebrate our year of knowing each other. I told you, he's the only one who remembers the anniversaries. <laughs> That is when he said, hey, do you want to see the tape from the night of the show when we met? And I was like, oh, my God, yeah, yeah. And that's when I realized that he's the man who heckled me. And I've just married a heckler. And that's why I live in New York City. Because that bastard was, uh, I, I was already in love with him before I knew he was the heckler. I mean, that's an enemy to the, and he's a New Yorker, so we live here.
1: Wow. <laughs> I married a heckler. That's kind of a Muppet-like twist, if you think about it, really, you know.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's, a. I like that, a Muppet twist. It's, yeah, it's pretty weird. And, um,
2: you know, because <laughs> especially
0: won't, when you grow up in Canada with British parents, the last thing any of them want you to do is marry an American. It's not something that you think about. My mother still has a hard time saying, my daughter lives in um America, it's there, hard. There,
1: there are some of us here who have trouble saying it too. But, uh,
0: <laughs> and that was before the last five years. It, like well, just, yeah, you know, as a child, of- it just wasn't something anyone ever, anyone I ever knew, aspired to. Nobody wanted to live in the U.S. Why would you? <laughs> Why would you? Like, Canada's amazing. So I did try to marry several.
1: Was that the perception when you were a small girl as well? Or is is that something that intensified over, oh, say, the last five years? Oh, Um, no. No,
0: when we were kids, it was like Reagan is bad, the AIDS crisis, and then healthcare. Healthcare was always the biggest thing that was always told to us as children. Like, why would you want to live in a country, a first world country? That doesn't believe healthcare is a right.
1: I have no comeback for that. I know uh,
0: it, it, <laughs> you know you know who gave us our healthcare, right? So anyone I, anyone who always asks me about Canada and healthcare, instead of getting into a political argument, I just steer it away and go like, "Hey, you know why we have free healthcare?" So in Canada, we have our major two political parties, which are essentially the Conservatives and the Liberal Party. And then this politician came along. His name was Tommy Douglas, and he started the New Democrats. Now they are left of left. We are the ones who are like, oh, my God, do not cross the street. You might kill an ant. We have to save all the creatures and all the people. And they fought for things which are amazing, like accessibility to all buildings. Like, we don't even have that in New York. There's still buildings and, and subways that people with any kind of uh, mobility issues cannot access. Um, and Canada, the New Democrats were always like, yeah. And then their leader, Tommy Douglas, was like, if we're going to be a first world nation, we need to give our people free health care. It has to be that way. It should be a right. Right. His daughter was Shirley Douglas, a phenomenal actress. And she just happened to be married to Donald Sutherland. So Kiefer Sutherland's grandfather is the reason why we have universal health care.
1: I got to go revisit 24.
0: Well, when (laughs) he was in 24 and I was in New York City visiting a friend of mine, we were at a bar on Greenwich uh, playing pool, but it was one of those like bottomless brunch places. So she was very drunk and... (laughs) she went up to the bar and this guy was like I'm jealous of your sandwich I want to be your sandwich and he was also very hammered and he was also Kiefer Sutherland and my friend at the time the woman that I was with she is Brazilian Canadian and I have seen men bike into poles Because she is so stunning. I have seen men cause themselves severe injury because they turn around to look at her and have no clue what they're walking into. This has happened on multiple occasions. I've lived with this woman multiple times. I'd seen it happen again and again and again. And so Kiefer Sutherland hitting on her was not a surprise. What was is that the two of them hammeredly decided to play pool. And Kiefer ended up tripping her. She fell and broke her arm. And he was like, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Don't worry. I'll pay for it. I'll pay for it. And she's like, I'm Canadian. I don't have health insurance. And I'm laughing hysterically. And he is like, what is so funny? And I'm like, this is hilarious. The three of us are Canadians. And your grandfather gave us free health care. And now we're in America where you're going to have to pay for her health care. You don't think that's hilarious? And he was like, no, I don't think that's funny at all. And I was like, this is the most amazing moment as a Canadian. Like, this is irony, Alanis Morissette. This well, is irony. <laughs> don't you think? Oh, it was oh, a man. good day.
1: <laughs> I, let's talk about your comedy experience here. You stay in here?
0: Honestly, it depends on 2024. I cannot, I cannot live under... I can't when there's a feminist liberal leader so close by. I cannot live under Trump if he wins. But unfortunately, my husband comes with a mother and she is alone and she's here. And uh, so if you're going to have children out there, people, please have more than one so that your only child is not left with the burden of you when you are old and a crazy hoarder. So we are stuck here as long as she's alive. That's not an invitation, and I'm not looking for any help on the situation, people. Please do not misinterpret that. We're just here as long as she's here.
1: Well, what about the comedy here? What about the performing? Oh, God, who knows? I mean, how have you found performing here? It's weird.
0: I've had some, like, amazing experiences, and I met some phenomenal comics who took me and just said, like, yeah, I'll give you a chance, and I thought I did well for them, and then it's hard to get back up. And then COVID just kind of killed everything. Uh, I had a very successful show for six years and the producer Under just... Under St. Mark's, right? Yeah, our show, with The 10-Foot Rat Cabaret, and our producer just decided to kill that during COVID. Uh, he suffers from long COVID and and just can't handle it. Oh. Uh, now I'm producing. I've been taken on as co-producer by a man who's been running a show for 15 years. We're about to enter our 16th season, September 30th, at Under St. Mark's. The show's called Muffins in the Window. It's hosted by a phenomenal drag queen, Katrina Slippery Slide. She's Katrina before the hurricane is, is what she calls herself. Uh, and that's just a friend of mine I've actually met through comedy in New York. And he's been running the show and recently was like, I think I, I need a co-producer. So he asked me to come on board for that. And that's been, that show's insane. Because he wants it as a cabaret where anyone can come and try. You, you desperately want to try being a performer, come to the show. It's going to be supportive. But he also has like insanely famous people who just show up and want to try out their new material. Like mm. Jeff Hiller showed up. I love him. I love him. I had no idea. He was on the show and I walked into the theater and it was a night I was on the show before I was producing and I was like, oh my God, Jeff Hiller is here. Uh, this is awesome. Uh, but New York is is just... And he's uh,
1: been, been running for for 15 years, you say, right? Yeah, he used if to you have... If you haven't caught this, you got to get out and see it, man. He used where? to
0: be at a theater that he ran called The Cow. It was called The Center of Whimsy. And it was over on, um, once you get it into the Lower East Side, I'm like, where's the grid? I can't figure <laughs> out where I am. It was like on Bleeker or Broom, you know, like one of those streets. And he had that theater for years. And then he was at the Crane, and now he's at Under St. Mark's. Under St. Mark's on the 30th, 10.30 p.m. It's an amazing show this month. Is it month.
1: a monthly, a weekly? Monthly
0: Cabaret, last Friday of the month. This season we're kicking off with Killy Dwyer
1: oh man she's great
0: yeah all the way back from california we got jen perney who's back doing stand-up and our musical guest is jackson sturkey who is a phenomenal singer songwriter uh if you haven't seen him you should anyone he's got his own show at pangea but oh my god he's phenomenal and we also have prizes hello super fun prizes (laughs) <laughs> they used to be before I produced. They used to be junk. Stephen was getting rid of. Uh, now it's actual like new things that I've been able to source.
1: <laughs> so, uh, other than this show, which you're you're producing and you're performing in it too, yes, yes, yeah, okay. sometimes okay. this month I
0: will be. I'm uh, there when people drop out.
1: <laughs> anything else regularly on on the this no kid these days?
0: No, except for my uh, a friend of mine in Canada. We. We started it this week, so we haven't recorded it, but we're starting a podcast called F is for Fat or the F word um, because he's he keeps sending me articles and I need to discuss them with people. So <laughs> that's our next project.
1: I, I actually count me among the people who would want to hear that.
0: Well, did you hear the, about the, you know, everyone's praising, oh, Brandon Fraser's having this enormous comeback he's in a movie called the whale and it's darren aronofsky i think did the whale mm-hmm. and it got like mm-hmm. a six minute standing ovation at Cannes and the toronto film festival gave it a standing ovation and daryl saw it and he's like again it's an overweight person who has no hope, who makes bad choices and eat bad things and dies early. Like, what is new there? What is exciting there? Like, why are we watching this and why is this this phenomenal comeback? This is a phenomenal actor that you guys all shit on when he came out publicly and said that the head of the Golden Globes, the head of the foreign press, sexually harassed him. Nobody stood up for him. Like the Me Too movement, we also have to support our men because I can't imagine how hard that was for this like super macho, like he's known as Tarzan, like super macho Brandon Fraser comes out. Mm-hmm. And then he didn't work for five years after that. Mm-hmm. And then I love when they're like, and now he has this comeback. And now he's like, in real life, he's gained a lot of weight. And people are like, it's so brave of him. It's so brave of him to be in this movie. He's so heavy. Well, oh, my God. more to the story there. Uh. Yeah, yeah, a little more. Also, have you seen Gods and Monsters? He's phenomenal in that. Oh, my God. So anyways. That's one thing we're starting. It's probably just an excuse for Daryl and I to talk and bitch together.
1: <laughs> one thing that we kind of leapfrogged over is that I just kind of want to know your experience in comedy here in this country versus what you were experiencing elsewhere.
0: Same bullshit, larger scale. That's really it. Oh, Do you, you
1: find it harder to crack? Like you, you talked about people, you know, you, you had done good work for but then didn't get the call back. with that yeah. I also, more of the same or was that uh, different in its flow than in Canada?
0: It's just so different because there's just so fewer people doing it in Canada yeah and then when I was coming up in Canada there were two comedy clubs in Toronto and those clubs were weird because if you got in with Yuck Yucks and Yuck Yucks owned the majority of clubs across Canada the owner is Mark Breslin he's a small petty little man who always told me I wasn't commercial enough to be successful who also told Jim Carrey that he would never make it and was part of the group that used to like crook neck him off the stage when he was like 14 to 17. He was brutal to Jim Carrey and like, hello, look where Jim Carrey is right now. I would call him quite successful. So, so, you know, and he, he, now
1: you're following in those footsteps.
0: It's just a, it's a crappy organization. So they yeah. were terrible. Nobody wanted to work for them. But if you did work for them, you weren't allowed to do any other shows.
1: The company in a company town kind of.
0: Yeah. And it, and it was a lot of bullshit, a lot of sexism, a lot of racist bullshit. Uh, One comic quit because he's indigenous and there was some real issues there. Then I don't know if you guys remember, there was that woman, she came to fame by doing, um, she does fat shaming videos on YouTube. She has a huge following on YouTube. She remade the This is America video. And it was just like just oozing with white privilege and was like the most disgusting thing ever. And her name's Nicole Arbor. Mm. And I started with her. She came up from Toronto and she was a terrible stand-up. I loved following her because it was like picking up the pieces and it was always fun. I hated doing shows with her because she's an awful human being. And I don't like her. And I've I've been very public about that. She doesn't like me. Not a big deal. I'm sure she doesn't even think about me. But the company, <laughs> Yuck Yucks, yeah. when she got national attention for her fat shaming video she ended mm. up on the view and while i don't like her Yakyaks Yuck chose to put up her original headshot and then out not only how old she was but made fun of the way she looked mm. and i was like i don't want to work for a company like that so that was pretty funny they're all terrible people yeah fuck you Yakyaks. Yuck i said it you can go fuck yourself but wow do they grovel to people when they make it when they make it really big, and then they end up back in Canada and they grovel quite a lot to get them. There's a woman now that has just exploded in the States. Like she just opened for Bill Burr at the Air Canada Center at the arena in Toronto, mm-hmm. but she lives in LA. She's huge, she's amazing, she's phenomenal. But I remember like everybody else in Toronto, Yuck Yucks hated her Never thought she was funny Other clubs shit on her As other clubs came up And she always had to do Her own shows And her own shows Were amazing And now she's exploding And it's quite joyful To watch It's mm. really really Amazing Have you New found- York I had a club experience Probably the worst Moment of my life And probably set me I stopped doing stand-up For about six months after Because it was so Demoralizing mm. But I had to do An audition For a club And it was like After their regular show And it was like just all dudes in their 20s. And I know that it is the comics job to make the audience laugh no matter what. But holy crap. They were just like, there's a woman in her 40s. I don't give a fuck what she's saying. Like everyone sat with their arms crossed in the front row. And then I forgot my jokes. I just forgot everything I'd ever done for 20 years. It just went out out of my head because <laughs> I was like, oh, my God, I can't believe I'm back here. I fucking hate clubs. I had watched the show before, which made me angry because all the comics were like, you know, your stupid Schwarzenegger jokes, your Bill Cosby jokes, and your I fucked a prostitute joke. Great white men. I'm so excited for you that you all have the same boring jokes. And it was all that kind of bullshit. Mm-hmm. I got into my head and it was awful. But... uh <laughs> The old man who owns the place, he insisted on talking to me after. And he's like, that was terrible, but you've got presents. (laughs) Got a
1: hell of a lot more than that. Uh, Well, listen, I'm glad you've made it through this point in in (laughs) pandemic. Uh, We survived. We're here talking. That means we're winning. I have to say, like, seriously, you're a wonderfully entertaining storyteller and a very funny comic. One of the reasons I'm excited that No Name will be returning this fall. I can't announce dates and places because we're still talking about (laughs) what's going to work. One of the things I'm most looking forward to is is having you back in our place when we're doing shows so I can see you
0: do your work again. (laughs) Thanks. We've had a lot of fun at that show. There was one night I remember every single performer ended up talking about their dead best friend, and it was the funniest night ever at Word of. I mean, it's comics. You have to understand that we take pain and directly yeah, turn one it into the jokes. Nights, it right? was no, it just worked no, out, it just worked yeah, out yeah. and it just happened that one person, one person started and talked about their best friend dying, and it just happened that another comic was just buried their best friend, and then I've lost my best friend. So we all just talked about it, and it was the funniest night ever. Maggie um, Nettle was yeah. on fire that night because she had just buried her best friend.
1: It, <laughs> didn't didn't even one or two of the people who signed up at the end of the night, you know, we always have a little bit of open stage time at the end of our shows. There, didn't even one or two of those yes, folks... Yes, they, Well, I might as well join Talk in. about, yes. And yeah. they all
0: talked about their dead best friend and we were like, this is... It's like, um, John Oliver had a person on when David Rakoff died. David mm-hmm. Rakoff, the author. Yeah. His brother is a very famous comic in Canada named Simon Rakoff. So I've known Simon for years. And when his brother died... I knew that he had just published a book. And about a week after his death, John Oliver had one of their best friends on to talk about the book and promote the book. Mm -hmm. And at one point, the two of them are laughing hysterically. They've said something about like, only a dying man would write a book in iambic pentameter because that's his last book (laughs) I believe was either in iambic pentameter or something else. It was crazy. And they're laughing hysterically. And then John Oliver just looks at the camera and says, we're laughing because if we don't laugh, we're going to cry. Yeah. And that was just like, oh, yeah. Yeah. That's
1: <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. That was one of those nights. I'm not just saying this. I, I genuinely believe you are a talent poised to crack this tough nut of a, a country. <laughs> um, I'm looking forward to seeing more and more of you at our show and other shows. And I hope that you will continue to come back and, and play with your friends at No Name. Thank you. Thanks for being here, Jillian.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: Hey, guys. Thanks for hanging out. I always enjoy talking to Jillian Thomas, and I particularly enjoyed getting a chance to do this because it gave me a lot of insight into a world I've never seen, you know, the, the Canada stand-up club world is like and what it's like for someone who gets established there and then try to come over here and, and, and do the same thing. You know, we, we always hear the stories of folks like Martin Short and Eugene Levy and Joe Flaherty, all those SCTV folks, Catherine O'Hara and uh, Andrea Martin. And we hear a lot about that, but it's a very different journey than that of a uh, stand-up comic and trying to get reestablished here. I enjoyed all her stories. I also love that she married her heckler that's a very unique love story thanks to Jillian Thomas for sharing with us thank you to Gary Hardcastle our amazing amazing producer the man is magic thanks to Courtney Hill for writing and performing our opening and closing theme music and thank you guys for sticking around and hey if you can stick around a little bit longer we have some bonus content coming up I'm not even going to tell you what it is Stick around. After the closing theme music and after this damn plane finishes flying overhead, we're going to come right back. You don't even have enough time for a bathroom break unless you hit pause. We got some fun stuff. I think you'll find it worth hanging around. And either way, until we see you again, either here or in person, my name is Eric Vedder. I love you all. Hey, y'all. Thanks for hanging out for our bonus content. One of the things about talking with Jillian Thomas is she's someone with a million stories. Of course, you know, we can't contain everything in an episode without going to a five-hour miniseries. I've heard her tell this story on stage on a number of occasions. It's actually become a regular part of our annual holiday episode. If you've ever had uncomfortable times with your family at holiday time, you will appreciate her pain. I'll leave it go at that. So we have a story from Gillian Thomas, and also we've included a song from our very own The Summer Replacements. The story on this is a dear friend of ours was putting together a fundraiser project, created an album of original music to raise money for the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, and they asked us if we wanted to contribute. So I wrote a song, and the band performed. It's produced by Miles Blue Spruce. Featured on the backing vocals are Binder Suez. That's Alex D'Souz and Richard Binder, both of whom have been guests on past episodes of the podcast. There's a guitar solo from our good friend Courtney Hill, who wrote and performed our theme music. Very much a family project, and it had a lot of meaning to us. We hope you like it. It's a song called Dust to Dust. And if you are so inclined, you can purchase either our song individually or the whole album. Proceeds go to support the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. You can find it at lostbysuicide.com. That's www.lostbysuicide.com. Also, if you'd like more information about the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, might like to participate in one of their fundraising walks, you could also go to the Foundation's website directly. That's afsp.org. So we're going to have a great story from Jillian. We're going to have a song from the Summer Replacements. All of that follows this message about Word Up Community Bookshop. Word Up Community Bookshop, located at 2113 Amsterdam Avenue. That's the corner of 165th Street and Amsterdam Avenue in Washington Heights. This is a wonderful place. It's a community-based place, and it is the bookshop with a little something extra. They have a great selection of new and used books, not only in English, but in Spanish and many other languages as well. They also have merchandise from notebooks to T-shirts to tote bags to games, all sorts of cool stuff there. It is largely volunteer staffed. They also have programs for young people. There are artist events, author events, there are writing workshops, so please check them out. Lots of good stuff there. They also have an online bookshop. Do check them out at wordupbooks.com and support independent bookshops. That's always a good thing. Whenever you're in Washington Heights, uptown New York City, be sure to drop into Word Up Community Bookshop. Tell me about Christmas time in Canada.
0: (laughs) So I'm in Toronto and my mom called me and she said, You need to come home for Christmas. Your sister's coming. You have to come home. Your brother's getting a divorce. And I was like, okay, great. So the whole family is being called back to Winnipeg and that is not where I like to spend Christmas. I don't go there if I can avoid it. My friend trucker Dan is this old trucker and he's famous in Toronto at this time for making pot brownies and handing them out at the pot cafe. So he says, I hear you have to go to Winnipeg. I've made you special brownies. These are double strength. I also threw in some mushroom brownies. Great. This is the Best day ever. And yes, this is Canada, and um, I'm very aware that I'm a white woman, so I used to fly with an ounce of weed and often with multiple packages of wheat brownies. Yes, I know. Stupid, stupid, stupid. Don't do it. So I'm flying home for Christmas. And I've got all these brownies. And uh, my brother is now living in my mother's basement. Yay, him. I am single. I am I'm a stand-up comic. So my mother thinks we're both the worst children on the planet. And my sister at this point is still the favorite. She is no longer. We all get home and my brother is a mess. He is just an absolute wreck. My mother's a minister now. And my mom has to do the Christmas Eve service. It's Christmas Eve, and my brother is just not in a right place. And I know he's been drinking. I think my mom is in denial. My mom says, I've got to go to church. Are you guys coming with? And I'm like, no, I think I better stay home with Ross and take care of him. If I take care of him, my mom leaves. I meant, hey, Ross, you want to do some pot brownies with me? And he's like, oh, yeah, totally. So I remembered what Trucker Dan said. They were double strength, so I broke it in half, and we split a brownie. Everything seems to be going well. My brother's drinking wine, and I am just ready for this brownie to take over because it's been a rough trip to Winnipeg. All of a sudden, my mom gets home, and she's like, Oh, she's so disgusted. I can tell you both have been smoking weed. You're both high as kites. I can tell that you're high as kites. I'm going to bed. It's Christmas, and you're ruining Christmas. And I'm like, Great. Okay. Fun. So I'm like, Well, I'm going to bed. And my brother's like, I'm going to bed. And so we're like, See ya. Have a good night. And I'm having this like amazing dream. I am making love to Benjamin Bratt, one of the most beautiful humans on the planet, when all of a sudden in the corner of the dream, this little boy appears and he says, can somebody help me? And I remember looking at the little boy and I was like, go away, go away. But the noise does not stop. And it's just, can somebody help me? Can somebody help me? And I wake up and I hear, can somebody help me? And my brother is standing outside my door and my mother's bedroom's doors, which are like right next to each other. And he is screaming, can somebody help me? Can somebody help me? And my brother is like just losing his shit. And I get out and my mom gets up and I walk him over to the sofa and I'm like, you're okay, you're okay. And my mother's like, what did you do to? Him? What did you give to him? I went to church. What did you do to him? And I was like, oh, I don't. I just gave him some pot brownies. And my mother's like, you gave him those pot brownies? I can't believe you gave him those pot brownies. And my mother, with her little arthritic legs, she's like, what else did he take? What else did he take? And I was like, I don't know. He was drinking red wine. And my brother's like, I also drank two Red Bulls. He drank two Red Bulls, a bottle of red wine, and ate pot brownies for the first time in 13 years. And now he is losing his shit. My mother goes running to the computer room, and she's like googling red wine, uh, a, a, a Red Bull and weed and she's like it equals death jillian it equals death and she is screaming at us from that room and running back and forth to take his pulse and check him. And I know as a stoned person that when you're having a bad trip, the worst thing that can happen is people around you screaming. So as my mom leaves the room and goes back to the computer, I look at my brother and I go, dude, you just got to go with this, man. You just got to let it take over. You just got to go with it or you're not going to have a good time, man. You just got to go with it. And my mother comes running back and she goes, I am not taking him to the hospital where I was head nurse of emergency. I trained all those doctors in there. Now they- they're going to see me bringing in my son who is high and he is 40 years old! And my brother's like, I'm in hell, I've died, this is hell, right? And I'm like, oh fuck yeah, you're living with your mom, you're going through divorce, you are in hell, my friend. And my mom's like, you've ruined Christmas and she runs to the fridge and she takes out all the brownies and she starts throwing them out but I know they're vegan, gluten-free and they're full of marijuana and mushrooms. So I run back to the garbage and I'm pulling them out as my mother is trying to throw them back out. And then my brother's just like, I am dead. And I walk over to him and I said, you're not dead, you're not dead, you just need to breathe. And then I start getting to drink water and more and more water. And my mom is freaking out and screaming. And she's like, you've ruined Christmas. And I am said, didn't his wife? ruin Christmas really I mean that Wiccan bitch sorry she was a cunt uh, <laughs> a Wiccan cunt they're very confusing I always mix them up but that bitch I like she's the one who chose to fuck her neighbor so I blame her for ruining Christmas my mom's like that is not funny and she storms back to the bathroom looking for anything to try and help my brother I have been plying him with water at this point and I just get a bucket because I can see he's so full of water now he just leans over and he starts throwing up four hours hours has gone by and the sun has come up and my sister arrives, my golden sister arrives to my brother bent over a bucket puking, my mom screaming, you ruined Christmas! While throwing brownies back into the garbage and my sister walks in and is like, Merry Christmas! <laughs> <laughs> and you know, while I may not have been able to uh, give everybody what they wanted for Christmas, I sure did help my brother through that time.
2: If your dreams have turned to dust Take your leave now if you must Keep your faith and keep your trust I will love you Dust to dust You forget it's all the same Keep walking to the light Sometimes you've got to hope the day Sometimes you hope the night If your dreams have turned to dust Take your leave now if you must Keep your faith and keep your trust I will love you Dust to dust But since you to I don't
1: Getting through the holidays is tough. Sometimes it's a little tougher. We thank Julian Thomas for hanging out with us. That is the only song ever put out there for commercial consumption by the Summer Replacements. If you feel like purchasing that or if you'd like to support the whole album, you can go to lostbysuicide.com. And if you want to support the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention or if you'd like to join them on their fundraising walks, go to afsp.org. We thank you guys for hanging out. We love spending time with you. Until we meet again, take care. I'm Eric Vetter.